Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, as we continue our series through this great book, examining the authentic gospel. You know, in warfare, there can be key moments, there can be key battles where everything hinges on the outcome of that battle. It can tilt the scales one way or another in regards to who wins and who loses, uh, alters the whole trajectory of the war, can alter the trajectory of history itself. If not for the success at D-Day, we might all be speaking German right now. Had it not been for Gettysburg, we here in Georgia would not be living in the United States of America. Georgia would be in another nation. And for all we know, there might still be people here that are in the chains of slavery. Now, in the book of Galatians, what we have is warfare over the most important thing in the world, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the most important war in the world because it deals with the most important realities of the world. Questions about God, about how sinful man can be made and, uh, to be right with God. Questions about who belongs to God's people and who doesn't. Questions about spiritual freedom. Uh, questions about spiritual slavery. There, there really are no more significant uh, and universally relevant questions than those. And throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul is a warrior. He is a gospel freedom fighter. And in Galatians chapter 2, what we have described here is a moment in the life of the early church uh, where, where there is a, a battle and a war that, if lost, changes everything. If the authentic gospel is not successfully defended and clarified here, the church would suffer a devastating setback and, and history would have been forever altered and many of us would not even be sitting here as Christians had it not been for Paul's defense of the gospel here. And this chapter, Galatians chapter 2, as opposed to being a dusty old historical footnote, actually has urgent relevancy to you right now because the defense of the gospel is not over. It's constantly being attacked, and therefore the gospel must constantly be defended because the gospel is a message of freedom and liberty to all who would believe it and live according to it. Until the day our Lord Jesus Christ returns, we are to be gospel freedom fighters, not just for our sake, but for those who are to this day held in spiritual slavery in need of deliverance. So with that preamble, why don't you stand with me now as I read this uh, section of Galatians out loud, remember that you are hearing from the Lord God himself through his servant Paul. So he who has ears, let him hear this word with eager attentiveness and reverence and ready to ponder its meaning. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, 
secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter by the way, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is nothing that I have to say that is more important than the things that you have said in your word. Nothing more important, nothing more significant, nothing more beneficial or helpful. And so, with that said, Father, please help me as I preach your word this morning. I don't want to say anything that you're not saying. Father, help us as we hear the word, as we meditate on the word. Help us to believe in the word. Help us to enjoy the word. Help us take spiritual sustenance from the word. Fill us up this morning with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're giving a lot of of attention this year to the 500th anniversary of the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, which upheld and defended the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And indeed, we should give attention to that. We should be celebrating that. But the defense of the gospel uh, can never be a one-and-done thing, because it's constantly under assault. This year also marks the 454th anniversary of the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic response to the Reformation. It was a counter-Reformation, if you will. It's like Rome saying, oh yeah? Well, here's this. It attacked the teachings of Reformation leaders like Luther and Calvin and others, and one of the things declared by Rome at the Council of Trent was the following. If anyone says... That by faith alone the impious is justified, let him be anathema. Rome has never taken that back. But it's not just Rome. This is the the DNA of all the religions of the world outside of Christianity. We are hardwired by sinful pride to be disgusted by the idea of free grace. Uh, We are repulsed by the notion in, in and of ourselves that God doesn't accept us based on what we do, but that he accepts us freely by our faith alone in what Christ has done. When the Apostle Paul went into the Gentile region of Galatia, Gentile means non Jewish, he preached to the Galatian people a message of freedom and liberation. 
a message that said, you can't get to God and be saved by being good because guess what? You're not good. But the good news is that God isn't looking for good people to save and take to heaven. He's looking for wicked people to save and forgive. And God has dealt with the sins of evil people by taking those sins and punishing them in Jesus Christ who, as he was being crucified, endured God's wrath in the place of sinners as a substitute. And so you don't get right with God by trying to be good. You get right with God by receiving, by faith, the substitutionary work of Jesus. You let his payment count for your payment, and that sets you free from the penalty of sin and the bondage that comes with sin. But after Paul establishes these churches in Galatia and moves on, false teachers move in. And these teachers said, Paul's gospel is inaccurate. Yes, yes, we understand Gentiles can become Christians, but it's not faith in Christ alone that saves you. It's faith plus. Faith plus some other things. You, you've got to become a Jew. You've you got to obey Jewish religious laws and rituals, including the circumcision of male converts. That's why these teachers are called the Judaizers. And they were closely associated with the church in Jerusalem. You could call it the mother church. It was the first Christian church. It was under the leadership of men like James, who was the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. The Apostle John, the Apostle Peter. And this church, as it was in Jerusalem, naturally had an extremely Jewish flavor with converts coming directly out of Judaism. And these Judaizers, they revered James and Peter and John while regarding themselves as representatives of the Jerusalem church. You can be sure that they were name-dropping. Well, well, listen, Galatians, I, I know Paul is telling you this, but, but we're from Jerusalem. Okay, we're from James. We're close to Peter. Let, let, let us tell you something. What Paul is preaching is a different gospel than what we're preaching in Jerusalem. Paul has learned the gospel from others, and then, then he re repackaged it to accommodate Gentiles because Paul is a man-pleaser. In last week's sermon, we saw in chapter 1 how Paul begins to mount a powerful defense of his apostolic ministry and the authenticity of his gospel. He demonstrates how his message is not contrived and concocted by men, but instead he got his gospel directly through revelation from the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, we see how Paul highlighted his own independence from the Jerusalem church to counter the accusations that Paul is nothing more than a second-hander. He's not a real apostle. Whatever authority he might have, ha have is derivative from the real apostles like Peter and John. And, and, and Paul's messed up their message, and so we're here to straighten this out. Now, as we move into chapter 2, Paul is still defending his gospel and his apostolic authority. And he's going to share four things that really, I think, blows away the Judaizers' accusations and their false gospel. Uh, these next ten verses here in Galatians 2 really is D-Day. It's Gettysburg. These are four heavy punches that Paul lands in this section, knockout blows to the enemies of the gospel. And so the first thing that we see in Galatians 2 is a divinely appointed apostolic meeting. Look with me at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. 
Now, continuing the theme from chapter 1, Paul gives us another reminder of his independence. He's been an evangelist and a a missionary. He's been out and about on his own for 14 years, apart from any significant contact with the Jerusalem apostles. But now the time has come for him to finally visit the Jerusalem church. And his companions are Barnabas and Titus. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you recognize the name Barnabas from your studies in the book of Acts. Barnabas is a Jew, But the companion of this trip here that that is the most significant is Titus. Because Titus is a Gentile who at one time came to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul calls him in Titus chapter 1 verse 4, my true child in the common faith. Paul was a spiritual father to Titus and he brings both him, a Gentile Christian, and Barnabas, a Jewish Christian, to Jerusalem. Why? Verse 2, he says, I went up because of a revelation. Now, this comment is further evidence of Paul's apostolic credentials, uh, apart from the Jerusalem apostles. Paul wasn't summoned to Jerusalem to give an account for himself, like, like Paul's being brought into the, to the principal's office to be, to be straightened out. No, no, that's not what's going on here. Paul says, I went there by revelation. Uh, God told me to go. And Paul has a very specific purpose for this trip In verse 2, he says, I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul, after 14 years of independent ministry, is sent by God to meet specifically with the influential leaders of the Jerusalem church, Peter, James, and John. Now why now? Probably because, at least in part, Uh, because of the spread of the false teaching among the Judaizers, there there, there was a potential here for a serious rift between the Jewish church and the Gentile church over this issue. This was an extremely vulnerable moment for the very young Christian church. If ever there was a time where the devil could strike and deal a very severe blow to the church and sow discord and confusion and division, this is it. This is the moment. Verse 2, Paul says, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, that might throw you off a little bit. A, a, A careless reading of Galatians might lead us to believe that Paul is suddenly having second thoughts. He's having some doubts here about the gospel that he's been preaching and that his purpose for this Jerusalem trip is to make sure that he's on the right track, that he's got it right. But a careful reading of Galatians will tell us he can't be having doubts. That can't be what this means. Because that would undermine everything he's told us in the first chapter. Remember, from last week, he's encountered Jesus. He's received messages directly from him. Paul's life was turned 180 degrees around. He's given 14 years of his life to this ministry. And are we really all of a sudden to believe that Paul says, Well, I know that whole thing on the Damascus Road was pretty convincing. But still, I'd better check with Peter just in case. Just to be extra sure about this. No, 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 not, not at all. Paul isn't going to Jerusalem to get his gospel checked out, to give him confidence that he's on the right track. He's not putting his gospel to the test as much as he's putting Peter, James, and John to the test. 
in how they respond to his gospel message. Paul already knows that he is right, and nothing is going to change his mind. But if the Jerusalem church does not affirm Paul's gospel, if they turn to Paul and say, sorry, Paul, we appreciate what you're trying to do here, man, but the Judaizers actually have a point. If that happens, at least humanly speaking, Paul will be running in vain. That's going to undermine everything that he's been doing. He'll be going around and preaching the Gospels, and guess what will happen? You know what will happen. The Judaizers will just come in right after him like they did in Galatia, but this time they can even have a stronger argument. They can say, folks, we heard about that radical Paul. He's come in to your town spreading this message. We just want you to know that he doesn't represent the Jerusalem church. In fact, did you know that Peter, James, and John, they had a meeting with Paul, and they told Paul that he was wrong. And so the Judaizer strategy of driving a wedge between Jerusalem and Paul would have succeeded. Can you imagine the severe damage that would have done to the young Christian church? It would be absolutely devastating. The damage would be incalculable. And so everything hinges on this moment. Paul is going to go big or go home. Because not only is he setting the gospel before the Jerusalem church, but guess what else he's setting before them? Titus. Titus is Paul's exhibit A. He is a living, breathing, full-blooded Gentile. That means he's uncircumcised. And yet, he's come to faith in Jesus. Here's my gospel, Peter, James, and John. Here's my message. Oh, and guess what? Here's Titus. He's not circumcised. Is he in or is he out? And so now, here in Jerusalem, the heart of everything Jewish, Titus is standing before Peter and James and John, and the Judaizers, by the way, have evidently crashed the party, as we'll see in a few verses, and they are forcefully advocating for their position. And so what is the outcome? Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Peter and James and John do not compel Titus to be circumcised, and I am sure that a big sigh of relief came from Titus in that moment. But I will bet an even bigger sigh of relief came from Paul. The Jerusalem elders stood with Paul. And they stood with him under very heavy pressure to compromise, which leads to my next observation. What we have here is a uh, a holy, sanctified, apostolic stubbornness. How many of you would regard yourselves as stubborn? Wow. (laughs) Thank you for being honest. Well, you would be encouraged to know that there's actually a holy way. There's a holy way to be stubborn. Even though this was supposed to be a private meeting between Paul and his companions and the Jerusalem leaders, somehow the Judaizers got involved in in this. They are always popping up everywhere. We're going to talk more about this next week. They're they're, They're like a bad penny. They just keep turning up. And here they are now, and they demand that Titus be circumcised. Now, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, it's going to seem really weird to you that these guys are so hung up on circumcision And by the way, in the book of Galatians, this is the first time circumcision is explicitly mentioned. But you need to know that the Judaizers are not inventing this requirement for circumcision out of thin air. 
They've got Bible verses to back this up. Friends, false teachers and pseudo-Christian cults that teach salvation by works always have Bible verses. Did you know that? Some of them have probably shown up at your door at one time or another with a Bible and Bible verses. The Judaizers had Bible verses. And if they went door to door, they would have a copy of the Torah in one hand. Maybe they'd have some clippers in another. (laughs) I don't know. And they would, sorry about that. And they would, they would take you to, get that image out of our heads. They would take you to Genesis 17. Where God said to Abraham that all the males among God's people, all of Abraham's offspring must be circumcised. And if they didn't do it, they would be cut off from God's people. And foreigners, non-Jews who wanted to join God's people, they, have, they would have to undergo circumcision and submit to the Jewish rules and customs. It's been going on that way for hundreds of years. And so they would have pressed you on this issue. Well, you believe the Bible, don't you? Don't you take the Bible seriously? You, you want to be a part of God's people. You want to be a child of Abraham, right? Well, look at those verses. Read it, read it aloud. Cults, cults like to do that. They'll, they'll shove these Bible, and they say, no, now you read it. And they kind of trap you that way. I said, that's what the Bible says. How would you deal with a challenge like that? Here's how Paul responded. Verse 4. Yet before, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul is not budging even an inch on this issue. He is digging in his heels. He is doubling down. He will not yield to the Judaizers. He's got his gospel flag And he is planting it right here, and this is the hill that he's going to die on. Why? Verse 5. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What's the truth of the gospel? That no man can be justified by observing the works of the law. That your standing before God does not depend on anything that you do, but it depends on what Christ has done for you, and you trust in that. And so Paul forcefully stands for the truth. And this fight for the authentic gospel has continued in every age of the church. Martin Luther, in his battle against the works righteousness gospel of the Catholic Church, wrote that the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. Luther goes on to write, if faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for he has not lived up to his promises. Therefore, Luther writes, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy, For by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, we lose Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. Luther, like Paul, recognized that Christ plus anything for salvation 
equals slavery and death. Now, some of you may have noticed that I begged the question about circumcision. The Judaizers are still standing there with their Bibles open to Genesis 17. And so we're still going to have to deal with them and that, and I will in a moment because it's very important. But before we get there, let's move on through the text. Thus far, we have witnessed uh, a divinely appointed apostolic meeting and sanctified apostolic stubbornness. In addition, we see a gospel-centered apostolic unity. Paul has set his gospel before the Jerusalem elders. He has dug in his heels over this issue of circumcision. And, and what's the outcome of the meeting? Verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, now Paul here is not taking a shot at the Jerusalem apostles. That, it might seem that way. But he's not taking a shot at them as much as he's taking a shot at the extreme reverence that the Judaizers had for them. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, I went and met with these people whom the Judaizers esteem so much and who they think are just so awesome, I got together with them. Not that I was overawed by them like you are. We all serve the same God who shows no partiality. We're all apostles here equally. But regardless, I met with them whom they think are so high and mighty, and guess what the outcome was? Into verse 6. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they added nothing to my gospel. They agreed with it. After all this time that I've been preaching the gospel on my own for 14 years. Remember, remember chapter 1? I never consulted with any man, Paul says. I never heard the gospel from anyone else. And guess what? It turned out to be exactly the same message as, as the Jerusalem apostles have been preaching all along. Not only does this prove my message was right all along, Paul says, but it proves that I really did get it from Jesus Christ personally. How else would I have known the right message? There's no way that I could have dreamed this up on my own. So all of your complaints, Judaizers, are bogus. My gospel and Jerusalem's gospel, they match up perfectly. They agreed with me about everything that I had to say. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me." Paul has been brilliant these past couple of chapters, and he's been walking a very, very fine line. Because on the one hand, he has got to defend his, his apostolic independence and the fact that he didn't get this from anywhere else and that he's not dependent on any man. He received all this directly from the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, he has to do that. But then on, on the other hand, he's got to show that, that I'm not a complete loose cannon here and that there is solidarity between me and Jerusalem, the Jerusalem apostles. And so Paul brilliantly does both in chapters 1 and in chapter 2. He establishes his apostolic independence and credentials, but at the same time says, guess what? We're all on the same page. All of us apostles here are on the same page. This would have been devastating to the Judaizers. Everything they've tried to do has been backfiring. They tried to drive a wedge between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles, and their scheme ends up driving them closer together in unity. 
And now what can they do? Paul has the full support and endorsement of the ones that they revere. Folks, this is huge. What we have here is an apostolic unity that strengthens the foundation of the church. A lot of times, even today, people will try to pit books of the Bible against each other. The apostles against each other. Some will say that there's a contradiction between Paul's message and the, and the book of James. They'll say James' book is about works and Paul's is all about grace. That's simply not true. And that reflects a shallow reading of both Paul and James. They preached and believed the same gospel. And here in Galatians 2, we have the historical accounts of the unity and the mutual agreement between them. What's more, you can't, you, can't, you can't either drive a wedge between Peter and Paul, despite the tension that's going to happen to them in a few, between them in a few verses, which we'll talk about next week. But in 2 Peter 3.16, we see that Peter defends Paul's writings, and guess what else? He calls them Scripture. He says they're Scripture. Now that's huge, because practically the whole New Testament is from Peter and Paul and James and John. Add up the books. It's a lot. And we can be confident in their apostolic unity, and we can read their epistles knowing that they are in harmony with one another. They don't preach contradictory messages. They preach the same message, and the books clarify and explain one another. Paul says they gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, you could assume Titus as well. The right hand of fellowship. Fellowship, the Greek word there is koinonia. and has to do with mutual participation in the gospel. They preach the same gospel and they are on the same team. They are together for the gospel. And finally, we see here a God-directed apostolic mission. Verse 9, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, don't misunderstand, this isn't two separate Gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. We've already established here an apostolic unity in their message. But what we have here really is, is something practical, a division of labor. Peter and James and John will focus their Gospel outreach to the Jews, and Paul and Barnabas and Titus would focus their Gospel outreach on the Gentiles. Now, of course, that wasn't rigid. Paul regularly went into synagogues and evangelized Jews. We know that. And, of course, we know of Peter's very famous witnessing encounter with the Roman Cornelius in, uh, in the book of Acts. But ultimately, they would strategically divide and conquer, so to speak, and so bring more people in to the kingdom of God. But the first thing they had to do before they made this official plan to work together was that they had to make sure that they were together for the gospel, you know, oftentimes today, um, a lot of churches thoughtlessly throw their lot in with any other group to do some work together. We're, we're going to, you know, we're going we're to feed the poor. We're going to, you know, do all kinds of things together. And, and yet, don't you think that we should make sure that we're on the same page about the most important things in the universe? I'm not saying that, that there can't be times where there cannot be some sort of appropriate cooperation between believers and unbelievers for, for certain causes, but I do think that sometimes the gospel gets thrown under the bus. Ah, it doesn't really matter uh, what they believe. They're talking about Jesus. It's, it's okay. But here we see, though, that it's very important for these groups to be together 
for the gospel. And then they make a plan to go out and do their kingdom work and evangelize and also meet physical needs. Verse 10, Paul writes, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now, the Jerusalem church was a very poor church and suffered greatly in their poverty. And this was a request from Jerusalem to the wealthier Gentile congregations to to help and bring some relief to them. Now, this request and Paul's eagerness to help is a reflection of the unity that is to exist between Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ. If it is true that both Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way, and if it is true that uncircumcised Gentiles possess equal spiritual footing with God as the Jews do, then they're all part of the same family. And so, of course, the Gentiles should be expected to bless and serve their Jewish brothers and sisters in this way. Jew and Gentile are now one people in Christ through the gospel. But we are still to a degree begging the question of circumcision. We have upheld the notion of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, but there are still unanswered questions about circumcision. We've left the Judaizers standing here, so to speak, with their Bibles open and their clippers, and their Bibles open to Genesis 17, saying, God said his people must be circumcised. What do we do about this? And so now as we get near to the end of our time together, let's put to bed this issue of circumcision once and for all. It's not that Paul prohibits circumcision. He just makes clear it's not a requirement for salvation. It's not a a requirement anymore for anyone who would be a part of God's people, Jew or Gentile. You see, Paul understood something about the Old Testament law that the Judaizers did not see and appreciate. Namely, that the law was never meant to be an end to itself. The law was always headed somewhere very specific. The Judaizers were right in that circumcision indeed marked out Israel as a people set apart for God. But set apart for what? Set apart to bless the whole world ultimately, right? God said to Abraham, in your offspring, the whole world will be blessed. There's a reason why the sign of God's covenant to Abraham was circumcision. It was a mark upon the male reproductive organ. And it would be a constant reminder that through Abraham's offspring, blessing would come from God, not just for Israel, but for the world. Not not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Circumcision was a sign of that promise. Circumcision, yes, in one sense pointed to a people, but in a more significant sense, it pointed to a person. Circumcision, like all of the Old Testament, was headed somewhere. And where it was headed was towards Christ. And Paul's going to drive this point home in the very next chapter in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, an explosive chapter. And he's going to tell the Galatians that the offspring that circumcision pointed to was Jesus. Friends, the entire Old Testament, from the law to the historical narratives, from the prophets to the wisdom literature to the promises, indeed the entire Old Testament was never meant to be an end to itself, but was always headed somewhere. It was always headed for Jesus. 
You ought never to read the Old Testament apart from what God is doing in Jesus Christ. You will never fully grasp and understand the Old Testament. Whether you're reading about circumcision, or animal sacrifices, or the temple, or the kings of Israel, or the land of Israel, or the promises of God, you won't fully understand these things if you are if you're not reading them from a Christocentric perspective. There isn't a single loose strand or random cord in the Old Testament that somehow doesn't lead you to Christ. Wherever you go, it is ultimately about Him. He is the main character of the story. The risen Jesus, to help His depressed disciples understand what had just happened to Him in His crucifixion and in His suffering. He takes them to the Old Testament and Luke writes in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And therefore now that Christ has come, the fulfillment of God's promises that circumcision pointed to has come. So now we don't embrace the sign, we embrace the fulfillment of the sign, which is Christ. Because circumcision and God's law was never meant to save. Paul says in the next chapter in Galatians 3.10, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And the reason why relying on obeying God's law brings curse is because nobody obeys God's law to the fullest. Even if you outwardly appear to do the right things, the Bible says that the ultimate problem is not what we do externally, but instead it is the state of our hearts internally. Our hearts are sinful. God says we are, or Jesus says we are guilty of murder just by having anger in our hearts towards a brother. Jesus says we are guilty of adultery just by lusting in our hearts. Jesus said to those who relied on the law, you clean the outside of the cup. In other words, you put on a good outward show and you appear good to men. But the inside of the cup is dirty. Your hearts are dirty. Circumcision and the law can't save us. All they can do is highlight our need for salvation and then they point us to the only one who can save and the only one who can bring change to our corrupt hearts. Judaizers never got that. In spite of their zeal for the Old Testament, they did not read it closely enough because even the Old Testament recognizes the need for heart change apart from the law. Prophet Jeremiah preached to circumcised law keepers. What did he say? He said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. And yet, God knows that the people can't change their hearts, which is why it said in just a few chapters after that, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a rhetorical question. Answer, nobody. Nobody can understand the heart. Nobody can cure the sick heart. The Mosaic law has no power to change hearts. It's impossible. And so a new testament, a new covenant is needed. And it turns out that what is impossible with man 
is possible with God. And so then a few chapters after that, we have the great promise in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And then check this out. He says, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Or one chapter over in Jeremiah 32 God promises through the new covenant, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And so the solution to man's heart problem is not to try to obey the law. You know what that's going to do? That's going to exemplify your heart problem. It's going to put it on display in an awesome way, awesome in a scary way. And it's only going to keep you under the curse. Instead, the solution is found in the hope of God's new covenant, which promises to change your heart. And how do we come under the benefits of the new covenant? Not through keeping the law, but through Christ. And therefore, on that last night before he was betrayed and had that last supper with his disciples, Jesus holds up that cup of wine. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that the new covenant is purchased and secured. And all who put their faith in Jesus and the blood he shed on the cross... Not faith in our own efforts to keep the works of the law. Faith in Him. All those will enjoy the benefits of the new covenant. That's why Paul says to the the Jewish person in the book of Romans, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. And and then Paul says to the Gentiles in Colossians 2, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. A supernatural circumcision, he's saying. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so in the new covenant, the mark that is placed upon God's chosen people is not a physical mark put on the body, but an inner change in the heart. It's not about the transformation of the flesh. Instead, God's people are identified by the fruit of the Spirit, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the marks of heart circumcision. And that's why Paul's going to wrap up the book of Galatians in Galatians 6 by saying, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so, to rely on your own efforts to save you, Paul tells us, is slavery. To place the yoke of the law on the necks of men and women can only lead to death for those who wear it. 
And it's why Paul said, or, uh, Peter, in, in Acts 15, Acts 15, by the way, is the, is the great Jerusalem council. All these controversies here over circumcision and over Gentiles becoming Jews, this is all headed to the explosive conference in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And, and Peter, in Acts 15, stands up and he declares this. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Why put the yoke on their necks, on the necks of the Gentiles, we who are Jewish through and through, we couldn't take it. We were crushed by the yoke. Why would anyone want to place a yoke upon themselves this day by trying to be good, trying to live up to a certain standard? I've got to jump through this hoop and that hoop, and I've got to get on the religious treadmill, and, and, and I've got to try really hard. And maybe if I'm lucky, I'll, be, I'll, I'll make it in the end. Guess what? If that's what you're relying on, you will not make it in the end. If you stand before God and what you have to show for it is your works that have come from your efforts and your strength, you're a goner. It's not going to happen. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There might be some of you in this room who are flirting with a Judaizer kind of attitude towards the faith. No, you're not a proponent of circumcision. I, I don't think that's a problem here. And yes, you might affirm with your mouth that we're saved by faith alone. And yet you have unintentionally, perhaps, raised uh, something to the same level of urgency as the gospel. Christians fall into this often. Well, we're the homeschooling group. Or we, we, we've got the, the hymns only group over here. We, we, here's the group that doesn't celebrate Christmas. Looks down on other people who do. And, and then there's the group that says, if you really want to be holy and spiritual, you've got to worship on Saturday, the, the Jewish Sabbath. And you've got to do the Christian life exactly like me, or you're in trouble. Folks, we all have various convictions about various things, and that's all well and fine, and we should, but we have a lot of strong convictions about things that are not the gospel. But when we elevate them to the same level of urgency as we do the gospel, guess what happens? We actually obscure the gospel of grace, and we put wedges between believers, and it undermines our mission to the world, and we pass judgment on one another, and we're trying to place yokes upon each other's necks, and it, and it obscures and ruins and poisons the love that we're supposed to have for one another, the message of the gospel is telling you to repent of that and don't put a yoke on your brother's back that he can't bear. Now, there might be others in this room who really have bought into the lie. You really do believe that your standing with God is based on something other than or in addition to faith in Christ. Message of the gospel is telling you this morning to repent. There is nothing that you can do, listen to me, there is nothing that you can do 
that is superior to the blood of Jesus. There is nothing that is superior to what he has done. Oh, how arrogant we are to believe that we can add to what Jesus has done. God, help those who think that way. To place your trust in anything else is to reject that shed blood and count it as worthless. Is to reject the only thing that can rescue you and the only thing that can circumcise your heart, making you into everything that you ought to be. Praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that momentous, powerful event described in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul doubled down on the truth of the gospel, did not yield for a moment. He was doing that for us. This room is full of Gentiles this morning who are saved because God worked, you God worked through what happened in Galatians 2. We thank you so much for that. Father, help us to not place our hope and our confidence in our flesh and in the works of the flesh. Oh, why would we want to anyway? What bondage that, what bondage that is. What a miserable life that is. Father, help us to embrace the freedom that we have in Christ through what Christ has done. And if there is anybody that has walked into this building unbelieving, let them walk out believing. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.